Hello, I'm Hal Lublin. And I'm Mark Gagliardi. Since the dawn of humanity, one issue has gone unsettled. With the fate of the world in the balance, we're here to settle once and for all. Best decade for film. That's right. Don't worry, everyone. We got this. Podcasts should have a theme song. Podcasts should not have a theme song. Yes, they should. No, they shouldn't. They sound good. Yeah, but people are just going to skip past it. Hmm. You know what? You're right. We got this. All right, Hal, you're sitting down at the cinema. You're getting ready to see a movie. You've got a popcorn in front of you. Yes. What era do you want to be surrounded by in the theater that you are in? In this imaginary world that pops up, where are you? I've been thinking about this a lot. I think about it a lot in general. I constantly am thinking about what are my top movies of all time. Being serious. It seems like a joke, but I do think about it a lot. And what's difficult about this Mm -hmm. is I think we really have to spend some time figuring out what our criteria are. Because there are amazing landmark films from the 30s, 40s, even the 20s, the 50s, 60s, then the 70s come. The game changes altogether. And you think like, oh, well, they've set now all of these templates for the way we're going to make movies moving forward. Then the 80s come and they do it all over again. So it feels like every couple decades, there's a renaissance, either technologically or in how you put the narrative together or just like one of the greatest of all time doing their greatest work. So I could sit here and say the 80s because Back to the Future is in it, but nobody has Back to the Future. It wasn't in the original AFI 100 Years, 100 Movies list. You seem really insulted by that. Yeah, I was wondering why it wasn't in there. Because look, it's won multiple episodes of this show. It has. It has come out on top. You know what the problem is? We need it's to your favorite Florian. movie of all time. <laughs> we need to go back to 1998 and tell them. But that's the thing. Like, I actually sat, you know, I, we, neither of us are, are a Craig Kakowski who has the right. ability the callback and ability to create a list of like, I have, a, he has a list of his favorite, you know, that Craigslist, we were there, we had dinner with him and yeah. he was explaining the list to us before that show even existed. Oh yeah. The, just the fact that he had this list. Yeah. So I was sitting there, I was like, all right, what are my top 10 favorite movies of all time? And I spent time mm-hmm. on that. And that was just so much for someone who spent like hours cataloging his star Wars toys that we acquired just to get <laughs> to sit down and make another list. Yeah. That was pure bliss. And then I started going, well, what do I think are the greatest films of all time? And that, mm. that was a different challenge. I'm bringing, I'm bringing my list up right now. So I have it in front of me and I didn't even finish my top 10 because I got uh-huh. to a point, I reached an impasse with myself. And which decade are we talking about here? This is all over and, the or place. This is, you're talking about just a general top 10. So yes. your idea, your idea was that you were going to see which of the movies in your personal top 10, if there was a particular decade that was better represented than the others. I was just curious to see, yeah. like, what do I have in my top 10? I do have, there is one movie that I have both oh. in my favorite movies of all time and in what I think are the best movies of all time. Would this your personal, what you think are the best movies and, of all and time? And it's number five on both lists. Interesting. Not on purpose. I was just sitting there going like, oh, I even moved it around. Like I spent all this yeah. time thinking like, what does it have to be like? Uh, I have, I have it happened one night from, which was, I, I believe was released in 1934. Yeah. As one of the greatest films of all time. Sure. And, and to watch it now, you wouldn't mm-hmm. really think much of it because you go, oh, this is just a formulaic romantic comedy, but mm-hmm. that formula didn't exist until that movie existed. Right. 
does that make it important versus the best? Like that's the distinction we have to make. Well, that's but what think, we, that's what I, we do on this show. Yes. I can't stop talking. This is my turn. <laughs> this is my episode. <laughs> next episode. Yeah. It seems like you've already figured this whole episode no, out. I just, I, did you do, do hold on a second now. Did you, <laughs> did you, do you have a script in front of you right now? It's more of like a loose outline. Oh my God. Um, you know, what's funny about the way that you and I both approach this topic because I also, took this very seriously because it is, it's a big question, the best decade for film. Yeah. And this is why you and I have a show, my friend. And this is why I love you. My brother is that we approach things from very different angles. Hmm. When you said, what is the best decade for film? Mm-hmm. My thought was, let's take a look at what happened in each of those individual decades sure. that moved film forward as a whole, as a grand concept of American cinema. Okay. So I think that uh, as far as looking for criteria to look at, I think that we can look at both what films did to the world in that era, as in which movies are the best ones and uh, which ones come out on top. And if, you know, those we wind up pinning against other movies from other eras, but also what the world did to movies in that time, meaning how the medium moved forward, talking about, you know, 1967 when Bonnie and Clyde comes out and boom, movies have changed forever. Sure. Specific eras of time. Cause I think if we look at it that way, there are a few eras that are very specific. And I think the Venn diagrams of your knowing your tastes of your personal favorite movies are going to overlap in at least one instance with, uh, I think a really important, specific, particularly prosperous and flourishing time. So I think that we can look at this yeah. from two different sides. I, I feel like I went into this and in mm-hmm. my brain, I had three, just, just when the idea came to me, cause I reached out to yeah. you this and I'll, I'll tell you the impetus for it later. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't feel like that's the story for right now. And also okay. in my script, it doesn't come till the third act. <laughs> sure. But I, is this the PDF? Is this PDF final one or PDF final one a one? I'm going to send you the new one, which is uh, ah, dang it, how? final one point B point two, oh, but I'll fine. send you the drafts in between so you can see the changes and see if you have any notes. I, I, in my brain, there were three decades that stood out to me right away. Yeah. And of those, I have one that I think is the answer, but I'm not coming at it from a position of this is the answer and you have right. to prove me wrong. I just had an instinct immediately. And the more I think about what you just said and what I said, mm-hmm. I think I may be onto something. However, there I think you be- may as well. I think I already know what you may be onto. Do you want me to tell you what the three decades are? No, because okay. here's what I would like to do. Hey, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? I would like to combine these two ideas. And okay. because this is a chronological question, I think we can go chronologically through the decades of cinema. We'll begin with a little bit of what happened with film in that time and then talk about our favorite movies from that era and what some that we think are objectively the best movies of each of those. And some of these we can get through quite quickly, like the 1910s. Sure. The movies, the camera all stayed in one spot the whole time. Mm -hmm. And then D.W. Griffith invented the feature film but we are not going to pick D.W. Griffith in 1915's Birth of a Nation. There's no way in hell that the 1910s, with that being the case, are going to be the time. So then we move into the 1920s. 
Do you have any favorite movies from the 1910s? No, I do think, I do think Birth of a Nation, the reason why it gets discussed, the reason yeah. why it was even in the initial list, which granted was in 1998, yeah. not 2022. But still. It is that is what it contributed to the filmmaking medium. Yeah. Is it, is it an aberration and an embarrassment? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is it also, did it also create a way to make films that were longer than a couple of reels? Yes. Like, yeah. is, is Gone with the Wind an amazing adaptation of a popular book that is one of the biggest films of all time and the, the look of it and the performances in it? Does that make it an iconic film? Yes. Is it highly problematic from the second it begins? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So there, there is a balancing act that we have to do here. That is the same conversation. If we like, I, I'm telling you, Mark, I pictured it in my head. The two of us mm-hmm. having, I've somehow agreed to go, to go to a bar with you. I was just going to say, I've somehow agreed to go get pie at that place in Philly with you <laughs> that has the Yiddish, uh, dictionary signs when you walk in. <laughs> oh, the Ben and Irv's? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Either place. And we're just, oh, look at talking. us, the gift of the Magi. I'm sitting at the diner with a piece of pie. You're sitting at the end of the bar like Norm, but with a fruit punch. And we've shaved Ken's head and stolen his watch. <laughs> But I, like, I, I imagine this discussion, this is part of it, right? Is yeah. like, there are going to be films in here yeah. that, that are not endorsements of the films, but just you have to recognize at least yeah. what it did for the genre moving forward. Like the usual suspects is a really good film. A lot yeah. of people involved in that film, not the greatest people. Sure. And their transgressions vary from severe and horrifying to just wrongheaded and public about it. Yes. So, and those, I will say though, are personal transgressions, horrific personal transgressions. Absolutely. And stories that affected only a few people. D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation brought the Ku Klux Klan back. That's like, true. that is, yes, yeah. that movie in how forcefully can a pendulum swing that the same movie that invents the close up brings back the Ku Klux Klan. A hundred percent. And that's like the range we're working in, right? Is yeah. It goes from this film is an egregious affront that brings back the KKK that yeah. glorifies racism and tells this severely whitewashed story. Mm-hmm. And here's a really good movie that's engaging that unless you're my dad, who's the only person on the entire planet who's like, I saw it coming of <laughs> usual suspects where it's the people involved are yeah. a problem. Do you think he really did? I don't know. I think he thinks he did. I don't know. Sure. I don't don't get what that is. I really don't get (laughs) that part. I didn't. I I don't know that that's something I inherited from someone who sounds like him and looks like him and has a lot of his behaviors. That one I just never got. I was like, really? You couldn't Coming, coming out of a movie with a twist ending and saying, I called it is a hilariously obnoxious thing to do. And I love everything about it. Are you walking, I called in, it. walking in with like a clue, one of those clue flip books so you can mark everything off? You ever, like you ever want to prove it? You just put it in an envelope first and you seal it. Hey, Hal, yeah. hold on to this. No, don't let me. No, you hold on to it. It's got my prediction in it. I remember him telling me that. I was like, he didn't know. <laughs> I still think, if you're listening, Dad, yeah. I don't think you knew. Do you have any favorite movies that came out of the 1910s and teens? Tens and teens? What would you call it? Yeah. Yeah, tens and teens. No, I mean, there's a short, I think, from 1912 called mm-hmm. 1 a.m. Sure, a, Chaplin. It's a chaplain coming home drunk Brilliant. and trying to get out of the cab, into the door, take his clothes off, get changed, and go to bed. What should take probably about three minutes takes, I don't know, 20? 
It's like a 20 minute. It's, it's so funny. Piece. It's, it's one giant staircase that wraps around the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will shout out Chaplin in The Immigrant as well. One of my sure. favorites from the time. And also Gertie. Did you ever see Gertie the Dinosaur? Yes. Yes, I have. The animated? Yeah. But mm-hmm. done with the... It, I don't remember where I saw it, but the whole, I saw the whole thing once. It's There's an actual human standing next to Gertie. Yeah. Uh, who is... You, and it would, you could only do it on a stage in a vaudeville house. So mm-hmm. as a weird bridge between two eras, I kind of love that. Yeah. Um, but it's not going to be the 1910s. No. Let's jump into the 1920s. This is the golden age of the silent film. They had figured out a lot of things. It was the era of slapstick of Chaplin and Keaton and Lloyd and also, um, you know, epic new feature films coming out around this time. Yeah. And midway through the decade, they're experimenting with sound culminating in 1927s. The jazz singer, yeah. Al Jolson, sings jazz and speaks along with it, blowing audiences' minds and uh, blowing the roof off of movies. Yeah. Also problematic, more towards the D.W. Griffith scale than the usual suspects end of the yeah. scale. Yeah. However, I mean, you have to note at least that that film brought sound to the pictures, proved yeah. that it could work. Yeah. And that is very impressive. I had to pick a movie from the 20s. I would probably pick The Gold Rush. I would stick with Chaplin. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. The Gold Rush was I, my eighth grade first term paper I ever had to write. I wrote about Chaplin. We talked about this when we did our Chaplin uh, versus Keaton episode. Yes. And um, yeah, that scene, the scene in the house, like everything that Chaplin did with the sets, the, the guy was firing on all cylinders once United Artists opened with him. Pickford, Fairbanks, ah, D.W. Griffith keeps popping up. But yeah, it was a troubling time. But uh, the Keystone Cops uh, had come out of Senate Studios and Fatty Arbuckle, also problematic, but not really through anything he did mm-hmm. through the scandal uh, and the terrible story that he uh, ultimately was exonerated from. But the first Hollywood scandal yeah. uh, leading to the beginning of the Hayes Code, which didn't start until 1930. Yeah, so let's go into the 30s. The 30s, I think that break with sound, I think this is the first decade that you had on your list. It is not. Really? I do have two movies in my top 10 that are from the 30s. One is It Happened One Night, Uh which again, the idea that it set, first of all, it set the formula for romantic comedies. Second of all, it killed undershirts (laughs) because of Clark Gable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You're not wrong. That is the cultural influence that he had and that films had at that time. That's hard to fathom because we're in a fractured media landscape, blah, 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 blah. The other one is another literary adaptation, which is The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. In the greatest movie year of all time. 1939, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I I think that here's why I think that the 1930s are definitely on the best for film list. Beginning of the 1930s, between 1929 and 1931. Mm-hmm. So sound changed everything. Yeah. Because now are out of work at a lot. Yeah. People with terrible voices were out of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, directors could not direct during the shoot anymore. Now there was dialogue to be said as well. Uh, music could be added and synchronized to things. So what happened was between 1929 and 1931, there was this giant brain drain from New York of all of the theater actors, playwrights, you know, Pulitzer Prize winners are coming out, uh, which I don't, I don't remember what movie it was that 
uh, Steinbeck and oh, it was uh, no, it was later in the 40s. Sorry. To have and have not was Hemingway and Faulkner wrote that screenplay together. Like yeah. brain, like brilliant minds came to Hollywood at the beginning of the 1930s and slapstick gave way to screwball, which is why it happened one night is such mm-hmm. an, a great example of this era. I think that, it, oh, and then music, you know, synchronized music and sound effects made it possible for Universal to come out with the Universal Monsters and yep. have their boom in horror movies. MGM started making their giant musicals. By the end of the decade, everything was in color. And the decade that began with all of the writers and actors and directors moving west to combine into this one big artistic soup ended with the greatest year of movies of all time. It is a tough decade to beat. You do have uh, Duck Soup, which is an amazing film by the Marx Brothers. That I love their greatest film, (laughs) hands down. Yeah, man, I love a I love a horse feathers also. I, you know, horse feathers is the one where the set wobbles and the extras are mouthing uh, mouthing Groucho's lines during one of his songs. Yeah, I love how janky horse feathers is. (laughs) But I Duck Soup is a is a masterpiece. Yeah, Um, I do think it's great. Mm-hmm. And the, I agree with you. 1939 may be the best individual year in terms of stuff that came out. And the year before that, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves introduces, Seven Dwar- yes, Disney, the, first Disney film introduces the first uh, feature length Disney film. Okay. I, I agree with you. I think this has to be a I finalist. Did, I don't think I'd considered it enough. The thing, yeah. the thirties are a finalist. I also think the decade that follows is also a finalist because it features arguably my number one mm-hmm. greatest film of all time, not in my top 10 favorites, but certainly argue everything's arguable, right? Until we say it's not. Is exactly. Citizen Kane. Yeah. Citizen Kane changed the way we make movies. So we got the close up from DW Griffith. We mm-hmm. got almost everything else from Orson Welles. And how he, how he made that film, the way it's put to get like all of those things are things that hadn't been done before. So he yeah. comes and revolutionizes how you can tell a story drawing from his theater experience, drawing from, from the success he'd had in radio. He comes in and tells this story that is, that is the story of Charles Foster Kane, which is basically William Randolph Hearst. And it, it almost like disappears. Like the story of it is crazy, but it is undeniably one of the greatest films of all time. It's stunningly beautiful. I recently watched it again within the last year and I forgot how great it is lit. You yes. know what I mean? It's the best Everything. use of it's, it's like, okay, it was a bunch of theater people going, okay, now we're working in film. Well, what is film? It's light. It's dark and light on uh film on celluloid. Okay. So they, Orson Welles and you know, the Mercury theater and those folks, created such an amazing beautiful piece of art um they were out of rko pictures and i want to bring this up because this whole chunk of time right here is really kind of one era right it's like yes the 30s up through the 50s was all the golden age of hollywood and the 40s i would i think you're right is where you know it really hit its stride with the best of the stuff and uh you've got five major studios right there's the big five studios Mm -hmm. rko was famous for taking risks on movies 
And they were the ones that did Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. At the same time, 20th Century Fox has John Ford and they're making Westerns going into the 40s. You've got Warner Brothers, the studio of the working class, doing its melodramas at the time. Mm-hmm. Paramount is letting the filmmakers, you know, really, really shine. Yeah. And MGM is making its big, huge musicals of the 1940s. I love me a 1940s musical. You know what I love? I love a cornfield that is so clearly a set that they're not like where the clouds don't move for the weeks that the story is being told. They're in the exact same spot. I feel they don't even bother trying to fool me. Here's what I love about the 40s. Yeah. Is because we are in World War II. Yeah. For a significant portion of, or at least a lot of the early part of the decade, mm-hmm. 41 through 45, we get a run of films made both during that time, like Casablanca made in 1942, which mm-hmm. is not only present in the moment, but also one of the greatest films ever made. Yeah. It, it stands as a masterpiece to this day. It 100% holds up for what it is, which is incredible. You also get Capra. And he's already done – it's it's so interesting to watch. In 1939, one of the greatest movie years, if not the greatest of all time, he makes Mr. Smith Goes to Washington Yeah, with a young Jimmy Stewart who is still innocent and and he's still going to go do a lot of his early stuff. Then he goes to war and he actually sees some stuff. And when he comes back to do It's a Wonderful Life, that's a different Jimmy Stewart who comes back and does that in 1946. Mm-hmm. But I think those those movies are – are set just the one two punch. If you left it at Citizen Kane and then Casablanca, that might be enough for me to, to say, Oh, so we have the person who invented modern filmmaking and then the movie everybody knows, even if they've never seen it. Yeah. Like, you know that movie. You I think it's got quotes from it. It still lives. It's two of the greatest movies of all time. Two of the, you know, top five are from that one decade. If we're yeah. just looking at the numbers, and, both and of those movies have, are top five. The theater people are still going. You have Olivier's Hamlet in 48. And mm-hmm. speaking of, of what it is to be in the war, what is it like to come back from the war? And you have the best years of our lives. Yes. Where an actual veteran who has lost his hands comes in and is essentially playing a version of himself and wins an Academy Award for it. Yeah. There's really, yeah, I would split the 40s in half. You've got the wartime 40s when, you know, they couldn't really make, uh, you know, they're making propaganda movies. Disney's over there making, um, you know, victory through air power. Uh, everybody comes back from the war in the late 1940s and you get like, there's all of this money that the country is suddenly flush with, right? Yep. So yeah, you get these and, and everybody's seen a little something like you mentioned with Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. You also get the, the beginning of sort of Hitchcock's rise. I know he starts in the thirties, but you have rope and yeah. uh, notorious. The studio system is chugging along. The genre pictures are working. Yes. They're they're firing the on all era. cylinders. Yeah, you've oh got goodness. Yeah, big sleep. Come on, we're at the Treasure peak. Sierra Madre, Maltese <laughs> Falcon. Like we're at the peak right now. Hal of the Golden Age. We have to take a break. All right, let's take fine. a quick break, and we'll be right back with more. We got this with Mark and Hal. But in the meantime, let's hear about some of the other great shows on the Maximum Fun Network and some of the folks that sponsor this show. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you in part by Trade Coffee. Mark, you are a noted coffee man. You are the coffee man of this show. I don't know that I'm a noted coffee man, but between the two of us, I'm definitely the coffee man. I mean, in my world, you're noted as a coffee man. Oh. 
Thanks, buddy. In my world, you're noted. Well, thank you. You've been on the trade train for a while. You've tried a few different coffees. What is it you like about the process? What do you enjoy so much? Sure. I love trade coffee. The reason I love trade coffee so much is the variety, not only of flavors that they have. I like to mix it up. I'm not a one coffee person. I like to change things up, see what I like from different regions, different growers, different notes within my coffee, different roasts even. And all of this is customizable. That's the big thing for me is I go on the website for trade coffee. I can customize exactly how I want it right down to the fact that I use a reusable K-cup. And so they account for that and get me the perfect grind for that and coffees that are specifically good for that. Uh, kind of system. So it really is a super personalized version of drinking coffee that still gives great variety. I don't think I've had the same coffee twice and I've loved everything they've sent me. They have excellent taste, which if you're a coffee company is probably a good idea. And that's because they they have 450 different types of coffee live at any given time. And they are actually taste testing all of these coffees to see what's going to be in rotation, what isn't. And that's why they're so confident they're going to match you right the first time that if they don't, if you don't like what you get, that is okay. An actual coffee expert will work with you to send you a brand new bag for free. They want you ultimately to find a coffee that is going to be right for you. And that is like a dedication to not only quality, but just having a good experience in getting the coffee that you're going to love. And they're batting a thousand right now for me because I've loved all of the coffees they've sent. So keep them coming. And right now, Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order plus free shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash we got this. That is more than 40 cups of coffee for free. Get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash we got this and let Trade find you a coffee that you'll love. That's drinktrade.com slash we got this for $30 off. And now... On with the show. The greatest thing to happen to radio. radio. We've got thrilling adventures and chilling suspense. In the briefest time, I feel like we got to know each other. Bro, I appreciate you so much for that. Do you read minds or what? It's really a very sacred space you've created here. (laughs) Bullseye! You've hit the bullseye, baby! Bullseye, interviews with creators you love and creators you need to know. From MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, did grad school ruin your reading habits? Oh my God, all those books you had to read for grad school. Did becoming a parent destroy your ability to focus on a book? Did the pandemic tank the number of novels you can get through in a year? Ugh, that happened to everyone and we're reading glasses and we're here to help. We'll get you out of a book slump, dismantle all that weird reader guilt. Which we know you have a lot of, but most importantly, we'll help you fall back in love with reading. Reading Glasses, every Thursday on Maximum Fun. I had that break scripted in. (laughs) How are we doing on your script? How many pages we have left? Are we okay on time? 50? Great. 50 for the 50s. So where were we? You were rattling off great movies that came out in the 1940s. The golden age. This is the golden age. This is peak golden age. Yes. We move into the 1950s. Still peak golden age. Wait, do you agree that the 40s should be a finalist? I don't think that the 40s are as important as the 30s are for film. But I think that it that some of the greatest movies ever made came out of there. It's a Wonderful Life I would put on there. Citizen Kane, Casablanca. Yeah. All came yep. out of the 1940s. So, also, I, the, to me, it's it's 
Citizen Kane alone carries mm-hmm. that decade, but it's not like it's the only good movie that a bunch of duds. You have that followed by an all-time classic, followed by one of the greatest, if not the greatest Christmas movies of all time. Yeah. Like you have all these standard setting things that, that are happening in the 1940s. And it's hard because, you know, in the 30s, we sound occurred at the end of the 20s and then it really went into full force in the 30s. So you got the evolution of all these artists coming in, like you talked about, that bring us to 1939. Mm-hmm. But it, it, to me, that's not an, that it gets better. It's not like Orson Welles is like, Oh, I'll just keep making those movies. He, yeah absolutely changed the game in terms of technique and craftsmanship and storytelling. Yeah. But in the way that the thirties ended on such a huge high note, mm-hmm. the 1940s do not end so well with the paramount antitrust act that breaks up production and distribution and theaters. That's when they drop from making 800 or so movies a year to making 500 or so movies a year. Now that's when the decline begins because the monopolies were broken up. Used to be, you know, the, the studio owned the studio, the distributor and the theater. They had to break all of that up. So they didn't spend as much money. They didn't hold on as tightly to their contracts on their actors. People started to spread out a little more. And toward the end of the 1950s, people are a little fatigued with the Hollywood ending that came out of the Hayes Code. They had a word for it. I don't remember what it was. The was something after something yeah, like that. something uh, something virtue. That was the the Hollywood ending. Was like it was one of the rules. So people started to get disillusioned with that toward the end of the 1950s. But before we jump into the Renaissance, is there anything that pops out of the 1950s at you as really really standout movies? Um, two two that really well, three. First of all, Roman Holiday is just. What year? I thought that was early sixties. What year is that? Nineteen fifty-four. Oh, was it? Maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe it was nineteen sixty. Roman holidays, so Uh, funny. uh, Two that I know are from the nineteen fifties. One is Rebel Without a Cause, yeah, which is like the anthem of a generation, still relevant to this day. And then the other is the one that is number five on my favorite movies of all time, and also number five on what I think is one of the. Wait a minute, can I guess? Go ahead. Is it? Singing in the Rain? It is not. It is not oh. a musical. I Singing in the Rain is fine. I like Singing it. Singing in the Rain is one of my all-time favorites. It might be it my favorite. Not only one of my favorite movies of all time, not only mm-hmm. what I think is one of the best movies of all time, but is my number one Hitchcock movie, which is Ooh. Jimmy Stewart back at it again with his broken leg. Oh, it's so murder good. In the rear window. Yeah. The way that movie builds suspense mm-hmm. and the way it plays with paranoia and and space and what he's going through and his design like it really is just it's just a master class in suspense and storytelling and i he, maybe he tops it i'm not as big on vertigo as a lot of people are i we can go into the 60s now might as well yeah um he does but yeah hitchcock did some of his greatest work in the 50s and then in 1960 he drops uh, here's psycho. how we jump into the 60s he drops psycho in 1960 yeah oh that goes kills off kills off his lead in, in the end of the first act come uh-huh. on it's yeah. a, it, it's an incredible, incredible movie. It's so good. Anthony yeah. Perkins turns in like, I, I, I don't think it's appreciated. You're so into like, oh, she gets killed in the shower and the ring, ring, ring. Mm-hmm. And he dresses up that if you, the next time you watch Psycho, I, I implore you 
to just study Anthony Perkins and his performance in that movie. It is, it's so it is fun. one of the greatest performances yeah. ever captured. It's on terrifying. The world. It's so good. Just his gentleness. Yeah. I mean, oh. he's, a, he's a troubled person. Like you yeah. get sort of all the different sides of him. So it's not a hundred, but he's suspicious, but not, you know, you don't know that it's him. Yeah. Some people, my dad probably did in the first 10 seconds, sure. but that's, Hey, look, it's in that envelope in your pocket. Yeah. I totally wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> now when you take that he's, card, he's, out of it just cupcake. says he's his mom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> match, match the corners. Make sure it matches. Is that the one you signed? Yes, yeah. it is. Prestige. <laughs> so this, the sixties again, I think is one of those eras that was divided in half because in the mid sixties is, you know, you have at the 1959, the French start making some really cool stuff and Truffaut wins the Palme d'Or at Cannes and Hollywood notices French filmmakers. And that influence creeps into the United States in the form of, Hey, these Hollywood movies with their Hollywood endings are a little, you know, that this is starting to get old. Let's do some cool, fun stuff. Uh, Truffaut makes 400 blows in 59 and then that leads to Bonnie and Clyde in 1967, the mm-hmm. French New Wave done American style, which leads to Easy Rider, which leads to uh what else? There were like three or four movies that came out between 67 and 69. That was just this new crop of filmmakers came in. And this is sure. what you were talking about before. These yeah. big swings you were talking about at the beginning. And I don't know if it's a linear path or if it's a circle or if it's a pendulum. I think it's a, uh, uh, you know what I mean? I think it's a family circus kid crossing the street. It constantly <laughs> sure. is. It's Billy You're trying always, to get from the back door to the front door. Everybody's got influences in common. And then they have other influences that, that are so, so much more direct in their yeah. work. But it is a time where more, it feels like more foreign drug. You have Franco uh, Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet. And that's, it's mm-hmm. a really all over the place decade thematically. And part of that is where society was pre and post so you're in this sort of post korean war like this peacetime and then kennedy's assassinated and then and we're already getting into vietnam by then so what society looks like at the end of that decade i mean it's to me it's one of like the starkest differences between where we are at the beginning and where we are at the end and the films kind of show that you've got maybe the golden age of music you could argue it's in the 50s I might mm-hmm. argue it's in the sixties because you get West Side Story, you get Oliver, Dolly, you get Oliver, you get these like Oscar winning epic musicals, huge, huge movies. You also have James Bond and the rise of yeah. James Bond in nineteen sixty two. I think was Doctor No. That was mm-hmm. the that was the first one. So it's just it's like so all over the place. You got guess who's coming to dinner? Like you you start grappling more directly with these larger issues. And guess who's coming to dinner is so good. Yeah. It's so good in terms of like how it, it's still, it's sad how relevant it remains today, but it does. And it's just great performances all around. Poitier got the Oscar for that, right? Yes. I think so. Uh, he, I know he got the Oscar for, uh, in In 1963. Well, in 64, he got it for Lilies of the Field. Which is also a fantastic, like, that's really like a Sidney Poitier decade. Yeah. And he continued to work and turn in fantastic work for decades beyond that. But his, like, he really sort of took off. We also get the birth of Mel Brooks as a filmmaker with the producers in 1967 or 68. So you have a lot of these voices that are going to really shape maybe the following decade a little bit more. 
that are starting to show up and turn in their early work in the yeah. late sixties and early seventies. I don't think because I can't put like, I can't put my finger on the pulse of this decade at all. And what it, I, I get what you're saying and like the influences there, but it, to me, it just feels like this is a bridge between where we were and creating the narrative freedom to get to where we're going. Absolutely. And that was cracked open with, by the way, the other two movies, The Graduate and Midnight Cowboy. Join oh, yeah. Easy Rider and Bonnie and Clyde as the, as the movies that moved that along. And what it moved along was Warner Brothers specifically, and then the rest of them followed suit of letting not making everything in-house, letting yeah. these young upstart filmmakers start making their own stuff. Because also this is the time when all of the people that had come up in the thirties making those movies and crafting this thing, they're all retiring, right? So you've got, this is the next wave of people coming through. This is that pendulum swinging. This is that Billy, uh, going over the jungle gym, uh, in the family circus playground right there. And Kubrick's getting weird. He's gone Kubrick's from, getting weird from like Spartacus to yeah. 2001, a space odyssey, which is a landmark movie and a challenge of your will. <laughs> this is a challenge if you wow this think, is spoke and by the way you know who's saying this hal is saying this about 2001 i know see you, you want me to say anything different i'm sorry i can't do that dave oh my god but it is it is like a patience tester it's amazing a lot of really cool stuff in it and you know after this sci-fi is kind of gone for a little while yeah. but i have a feeling in our next decade oh it's gonna come back we're going to find a lot of things coming back and not only coming back, but coming back in an elevated way with a lot more to say. And that yes. is, that is why I think, I mean, this is, I knew this one was on this, the seventies is one of the finalists. Yeah. Of course. Well, this is, I think what we were talking about, what you were talking about, you know, at the end of the 1960s with Mel Brooks coming up and these other artists really coming out of the end of the 1960s that that era began at the end of the 1960s but this is the 70s era you're talking scorsese coppola de palma altman this is uh what they Lucas. called they well what they called new hollywood cinema yes. and these guys are making socially socially conscious pretty heavy movies and then along comes the other flip side of that coin of new Hollywood or new American cinema. And that's Lucas and Spielberg who go, let's make some escapist fun and invents the blockbuster. So you've got two paths of movies happening at the same time, I think. And both are, are really firing on all cylinders. Yeah. I mean, look, not only do you have a bunch of people doing their best work, if I get, I could sit here. And just like nonstop list, great films from the seventies. Yeah. Godfather is, to, yeah. is arguable against Citizen Kane for the greatest film ever made. Mm -hmm. Then you have Chinatown, which brings back the noir, but has a lot more to say about it. You have yeah. Star Wars. And also Wars. brings back the problematic. Yes. Let's Star separate Wars, the art from the artist. Yeah. Star Wars not only brings back science fiction and fantasy together in a way that Almost hasn't been done before and, and also introduces the idea of used space that things in space are not always clean. It's like dirty. Mm -hmm. It's been through stuff, but changes technologically the, like the leaps that Lucas and, and his, his group at industrial light and magic, the, the things that they're able to do, camera techniques, uh, they just 
they created all these problems in how they were going to tell their story. And then they figured out how to solve them because they had the smartest and hardest working people possible to do it. And then yeah. kept, like he is, if you made it a monument to a small group of filmmakers who have the greatest responsibility for technological or just achievements in storytelling and how films are made, there's no question he belongs on there. You have Coppola making not only The Godfather, which is the greatest movie of all time, then he makes a sequel that, in my opinion, is even better. Although, yeah. did I tell you this? My parents went to see their first movie date was to see The Godfather Part 2, and neither no. of them had seen Part 1, and they hated it because it makes zero. You have to see The Godfather. You have to watch them in order. Don't watch the Corleone saga where they do it. Like, Just watch Godfather 1 and then watch Godfather Part 2. Godfather Part 2 is... it's unreal how good it is like yeah there's nothing it's not like they improve i'm an italian you don't think i've watched the godfather and the godfather part two with my dad every year on a holiday when he goes come sit down it's at this part look clemenza is making his sauce coppola also get like he gives us the godfather movies but also gives us the conversation how crazy is that you have rocky which creates like the under, like you just have all of these. You have the deer hunter, the exorcist, towards the end. You've got two of the greatest comedies of all time. You've got blazing saddles and young Frankenstein. Well, yeah, I was going to say blazing saddles and Monty Python and the Holy grail that changed comedy forever. I do not disagree with you that the seventies was full of great movies. We're passing it on to the finals. We'll uh, talk about it more. I am certain in a few minutes. Sure. sure. Let's jump to the 1980s. The 1980s, we're seeing the beginnings of the boom of blockbusters. The 80s, and we're looking at the history of movies. This is where things kind of start to, this is, first of all, this is within our lifetimes. And this is no longer, this no longer feels like a history lesson and more like just things that have happened. This is when big corporations bought up all of the movie studios and studios became brands and everything became, uh, you know, uh, gone were the days of the studio executive. Now it's corporate boards and it's, we just want blockbusters. And people deliver. You have Spielberg. I mean, Spielberg. Oh yeah. I'm not saying that blockbusters are bad. You know, which movies I go to see. No, I know. But Spielberg goes from Jaws and Close Encounters of the Third Kind to Mm -hmm. making in two consecutive years. Raiders of the Lost Ark is released where he and George Lucas can collaborate in like the, the, each of them doing the best version of their job to make a movie and then bringing in Lawrence Kasdan. Jeffrey Bowen, like bringing in these great screenwriters to work with them. And then, and then the next year he does ET makes this intensely personal film that becomes one of the biggest movies of all time. So Spielberg is like, this is, I think maybe his apex, although we're, we're going to obviously revisit a masterpiece that he does in the next decade as well. Sure. A couple of masterpieces, but his actual personal deep masterpiece that his is his uh, con card. Yeah. Also, I read an article recently. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get close to the mic here. I read an article recently yeah. because we are, I think yesterday was the 40 year anniversary of the release of Tron. Oh, wow. And Tron, for all of the things that it was not a success mm-hmm. at the box office because it cost too much to make, even though it made more money than anything they'd done live action at that time, it just cost too much to make. It was a huge leap forward in how films were made. So sure. that film is is like a benchmark that people don't think about as much. I mean, there's CG in Wrath of Khan where they show the Genesis project and stuff. But this was a big deal that they were building. And that's why a lot of it is dark. It's like, well, let's just make it a dark world where we only have to animate these things. because we Oh, can't. That, 
That's Can't great. That's why it was Can't dark. Process. Yeah. yeah. That's as much processor power as we had was that Tron world. Yeah. By the Which way, it's cool do, now that you can look at the light cycles and I do want to go back and say that the seventies also gave us Superman. Okay. It gave us a believable superhero film, which is incredible. And That's the rebirth true. of Brando as an actor, like he became relevant again because of the Godfather after flaming out. I, I'm not disagreeing with you that the seventies are going to make it through. Hal, we're talking about the eighties now. Get to my script. Oh my gosh. So look, we grew up in the eighties. These we're going to have an affinity for, obviously. Sure. Yeah. You've got John Hughes movies. You've got that whole aiming toward uh teenagers, that world and kids and families. Or maybe I'm just thinking about kid and family movies because that's when we were growing up. You've also got Working Girl came out in the 1980s. These yeah. are just movies that define an era. Also, three genres were basically either created or codified. One is the slasher mm-hmm. film with 1980s Friday the 13th and then 1984's Nightmare on Elm Street and all the films in between and after kind of yeah. set like the teen slasher flick. We also got the right guy in the wrong place at the right time with Die Hard. Mm-hmm. That was new. Sure. And Die Hard on a blank. Yes. And the two cops who shouldn't be partners, and yet they are. And we get the buddy cop movie with Lethal Weapon. Those all happened in the 80s. So it's not like maybe the technologically we didn't jump forward that much. We did jump forward some. But in terms of creating genres that we still use today that are still extremely popular, there's a lot going on in the 1980s. Plus, you get Back to the Future and... A sure. ton of teen com like that's really like the teen comedy there as well. Porky's Revenge of the Nerds, Ski School, Hot Dog. Look, the we movie. can't. We're not. We're, we're talking about They're the great dead. movies. Savage Steve <laughs> Holland. Oh my God! How did we talk about Savage Steve Holland? I leave you alone for two seconds. One Crazy Summer. You also have it's two movies. Script. Two movies that come out at the end of nineteen of the nineteen eighties that changed yeah. the game for the next decade. By the way, I don't think the eighties are going to the finals. Dangerous liaisons. I agree. Right, now, are you close Wikipedia? Stop Ufrain reading and Roger talk to Rabbit. me, Hal. Stop reading and Is talk Ufrain to Roger me. Is Who Framed Roger Rabbit one of them? Yes, it's a great movie. I'm pointing at the camera. You can't see it. Yes, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is one of them for its technological innovations. There are three, actually. Batman, which launched the next round of all of these great superhero movies. Yeah. And, of course, uh, The Little Mermaid, which led to the Disney Renaissance. Good point. And really brought them back with Michael Eisner at the helm and all of those great Disney and animated movies that came out of there throughout the 90s, which we're talking about right now. Big, by the way, um, again, this is all stuff that's happened in our lifetime, but historically what has happened for the movies in this time, we've got VHS tapes beginning in 1980, Betamax in 75, VHS tapes starting in 1980, and that gives us the ability to watch movies at home Right. They for, at first sold them for 80 to $90 a piece if you wanted them, mm-hmm. which set up the rental model, which arguably we're using a newer version of now with renting movies on Amazon Prime Video as opposed to owning physical DVDs anymore. But it led to yeah. the creation of really like the late 80s, early 90s of people having movie libraries at home, which as a kid, mm-hmm. I loved my movie library. I had my VHS tapes. I still have my DVDs, most of them. I've whittled them down over the years. I'm looking over your shoulder right now, and I see much of your library. No, those are books. Those are books? I don't no, understand. The DVDs are in giant binders. I have oh, great. like 9 to 11 giant binders filled with DVDs because I got rid of them in their cases long ago. It took a whole uh, of our old, of a couple places ago of that yeah. place. So trying to... 
I wrestle with getting rid of it all the time because I yeah. think I've replaced most of it in streaming and digital. The VHS stuff I have and get rid of it. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But, uh, it's hard to, it's hard to relinquish control of those things when they have like features and stuff like that. And the nineties is nineties, a really interesting time in filmmaking. Once again, you have uh, some absolute masterpieces being made. You have uh Schindler's list. You have Shawshank redemption. I would argue that 1997 is one of the other, it's probably one of the best fields of best picture nominees in history. Here are the movies. Okay. Okay. As good as it gets. Mm -hmm. Goodwill hunting, the full Monty LA confidential and what should have been boogie nights, but instead was the, for a long time, the biggest grossing film in history. And one that I will argue is massively overrated until I, till I no longer draw breath. And let me say, I'm glad everybody <laughs> who worked on it got paid and did really well. And that is Titanic. You I, argued this with me it, just this afternoon. And you weren't even arguing against it. I was just <laughs> no. like, let me tell you something else. Let me tell you I was like, oh no. Titanic. Oh no. Grandpa's thumbs are going again. Again, the technical achievement of it is fantastic. And, yeah. and it's, uh, I, I think there were films more deserving of the best picture Oscar that year sure i mean that's an incredible year for movies but also a major film studio is born and really comes like sprouts up in 1995 with a little Which movie is. called toy story that's pixar. right you get pixar first feature film the first yeah. cgi computer animated feature film that again is like a landmark in using technology to tell stories and eventually influenced how disney made their films when they stopped doing traditional animation after princess and the frog yeah, and by the mid-90s, the doors have been blown open thanks to home movies and uh, all kinds of new distribution models all over the place. So there's this is when the content boom really starts to take off with direct-to-video and uh, new distributors. Like uh, you have New Line and you have Miramax mm -hmm. dropping these interesting and, you know, kind of out-of-left-field movies. Fox Searchlight. Uh, Fox Searchlight, you've got, so you've got Pulp Fiction comes out. And also these, you know, these directors that are coming up now, Rodriguez and Tarantino and these guys who That's grew that. up on, uh, yeah, who all grew up on that new, what they call it, a uh, new American cinema, that whole second yes. wave. So Wouldn't this is you... that pendulum slash Billy going through the jungle gym again. I was going to say, wouldn't you say that like the late sixties, early seventies was a lot of great American, these new American directors who would have been making mm -hmm. indie films, but there wasn't really a means to do so. You kind of had to work within the studio system. Yeah. And once we get to the nineties, there's a lot more indie film. I would say like between the story of Kevin Smith selling clerks mm -hmm. and what that meant and the story of Quentin Tarantino and what he did with Pulp Fiction and before that true romance and sort of his rise really created this like it's a an interesting time for indie film. There are a lot of really good and very small yeah. movies being made that you can enjoy. But there it also gave rise to a lot of the tropes of what an independent film is like, oh, we're gets two friends in a car traveling across the country. They don't right. belong together, blah, blah, blah. And they're just talking. I don't think the 90s is a competitor. I also don't know the 2000s or the 2020s are the 2010s, the 2010s. Sorry. Yeah. This at this point, there is so much out there that I don't think we can even. Yeah, we, we can look at sort of micro trends from there. But as far as the big swaths that have been cut, I think that it's down to a couple of contenders. I don't know if I'm being perfectly honest. 
if the 1940s can hold up to the 30s and the 70s as the two, if we want to narrow it down. I think the 1940s are great. I think it was the studio system at its best, but the 30s invented that system and put all the pieces in place for it and ended by launching the 1940s with 1939, the greatest movie year of all time. Here's where I get caught up. What's that? Is do we take like the first person who ever built a motor car and like, it's kind of rickety, but it works. And then by the end, it's like, oh, it's a pretty decent car. And then the next day, next decade comes along and you get like a Rolls Royce. Like, oh, I they think took everything that was made there and then made the best car. I don't think it, I don't even know about cars, but like they make a great car. Using that analogy, I would say the 1940s had two Rolls Royces. I didn't pay more than that, buddy. What's one? I mean, I mean going by this rationale, but it had I mean, two Rolls Royces, but the 30s had a thousand Aston Martins. Yeah, but somebody had a Fiat in there. Sure, but the, there were, I, I think that the 1930s were a more influential, a more important year for movies. It was the first, I think it was more exciting what was happening then. Mark. What? Do you know what we're doing? Arguing about the 30s or the 40s when the answer is the 70s? Correct. <laughs> People of the world. <laughs> New American cinema? Come on. These people are still making movies. Look, like, just take a look at, at everything that was made and the, the auteurs who rose in that decade. Coppola, Scorsese, Lucas, and Spielberg. Just take the four of them. They're not the only ones who are doing great work in that decade. And you have, like, just this powerhouse of filmmaking and the establishment of the summer blockbuster. The just the Godfather films, the conversation, like all of these things and also stuff like Annie Hall, highly problematic, but Star Wars existing, like all of these things happened within five years, within five years, you got Godfather one and two, you got Chinatown, you got, you got Rocky, you got Star Wars. Those are just a few. And we're not even out like. Once we get out, we get Star Trek coming to the big screen. Not a good movie. Cannot, I will not hear your defense of it. So you will believe a man can fly with Superman. You get Meryl Streep rise into prominence with Kramer versus Kramer. I mean, it's just, it's an incredible decade. And if you want to know just sort of what it was like then, I urge you to watch the Paramount Plus series, The Offer, which is a limited series all about the making of The Godfather. It is 10 hours long. And Jennifer and I watched it over three nights and like, I wish it was a a million episodes longer. It just, did you just do this? And is this why we're doing this episode? It made me think about like, what is the best (laughs) decade for movie making? Cause I was looking at all the stuff that was happening then, but also looking at what it came off of in the sixties and what the thirties and forties meant and what's happening now. It just felt like the conversation to have. So the answer is the seventies. It just, it like it is. If you haven't seen these movies, go watch them. Even the, the conversation sounds so dull. It sounds so dull, but it's, uh, you will be on the edge of your seat. Your shoulders will be tense in a good way. That is why, just one example of why the 70s is the best decade for film asked and answered. Thank you to me for coming up with this topic. (laughs) Thank you to you for coming up with this topic and deciding the gentleman who has a Darth Vader over his left (laughs) shoulder 
And underneath that Darth Vader, two Darth Vaders, underneath those, a Jabba the Hutt. That's 80s. Who knew that this guy was going to pick the 70s as the best decade for movies? (laughs) Though, yes, you're right. Empire and Jedi came out in the 80s. Yeah, that's right. Where do you see my longest yard poster? (sighs) The big reveal. That's it. That's well, it. Topic thank you, Tom. <laughs> You're welcome. I think somebody else suggested this at some point. Maybe that's what's. I'm sure it's been suggested. This topic is close, but there are many more topics to discuss. So please reach out to us on Twitter at We Got This Tweets, or you can email us at We Got This Podcast at gmail.com or go to our Facebook group. Talk about your favorite decades for film and why. This is what this show is about. It's about having and fostering conversations. Facebook.com slash group slash We Got This Podcast. Thank you to producer Ken Plume, who's great at having conversations over at a bit of a chat with Ken Plume. And Force 5 is new video series where he talks to people who collect, you guessed it, Star Wars toys about their five favorite figures. Also, I want to thank graphic designer Eric Kelman, Q engineer Jen Alba, researcher Kate McManus. Thank you, Kate. And of course, thank you to our musicians, Jonathan Dinerstein and Mike Furman, for our score and theme song, respectively. And thanks to you, the people of the world, with whom Hal and I would love to sit down in a movie theater, grab our popcorn. And you know what era it is? It's the late 1970s. We're all looking groovy. We're wearing our best crazy clothes. We're kicked diaper. back. Or what? I'm in a diaper. I was you're in a, a diaper. You're in, I was taking us back in time, man. I was taking us back in time. We're sitting in that theater. And guess what we hear on the screen? Me crying. After reading the words a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Me crying because I made a, a stinky. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For Hal Lublin, I'm Mark Gagliardi. For Mark Agliardi, I'm Hal Lublin, and don't worry, everybody. We got this. We got this. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned, audience supported.